Welcome to a special edition of Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. You're about to listen to an episode in the 10-part Touched by Suicide series. Trigger warning, this episode may include discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance abuse, and self-harm. If these topics are sensitive to you, proceed with caution. It may also contain strong language and is intended for an adult audience. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Please be sure to share this podcast with anyone who needs to hear it right now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Touch by Suicide, a podcast series inspired by Steve Tarpinian, who died by suicide in 2015. I'm your narrator, Michael Lovato. In this series, we share perspectives from people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. Our goal is to raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding suicide and mental health issues. And to always remember, you are not alone. Today we hear the perspective of a surviving partner. Her name is Jean Milano. Steve and Jean met in 1981 and were together for over 33 years. Theirs was a love story and a tragedy. In 2013, Steve started slipping away as his depressions were becoming more frequent and longer in duration. Even though he sought professional help, he could no longer make decisions and was no longer capable of running his business. Sadly, we lost Steve to suicide on March 15, 2015. Surviving loved ones of suicide battle their own demons as they try to understand what happened. Jean's story is so important because she shares not only her anguish, but what she has learned in the last six years. Like many survivors, memories continue to surface at often unexpected times. After she finished this interview, Jean remembered something important that she wanted to make sure we included. A few weeks before Steve passed, in a phone conversation, he shared with her that he was so afraid. When she asked what he meant, he could not, or did not want to, explain what he feared. Little did she know, he probably realized he was literally losing his mind and had no control over it. He felt that he had no options left. Steve was her Iron Man, her rock of support, who got her through cancer and the passing of her parents. How could he possibly feel so vulnerable and alone? And how could she not know? These are the thoughts that continue to surface even now seven years later. Sadly, this is common for survivors. So if you're going through this, you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Now, let's hear from Jean and Nicole. It's showtime. It is showtime, Jean. Thank you for uh, sharing your story with me today. And thank you for being the initiator of this truly incredible project that's helping so many people. I hope it is. And I thank you and Michael Lovato for entertaining my ideas. I think it's great. I'm just, I couldn't have done it without you. Well, guess what? It takes a team. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, you know, we've learned through all of this 
is that we do not want people to feel alone in this world. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that you don't feel alone in this project. I know I don't. No, I don't. Well, let's let's jump right in and talk about since you are Steve Tarpinian's surviving partner. Um, I want to hear about your love story with Steve. Let's talk about how you met. Yeah, Steve and I, we we just we had such a wonderful love story. And I do remember the very first day that we met, it was August 29th. He was a lifeguard at Jones Beach. And my friends and I were cycling on the bike path to Jones Beach. And these guys would hang out their car windows and start yelling and screaming at all of us girls in our little shorts and roller skates. And I said to my friends, I said, hey, next time we see a good looking guy, I'm going to jump up and down and start screaming. So we went to Jones Beach and we're sitting there at the beach and having a soda. And all of a sudden, these three gorgeous guys come running through and they're lifeguards. And Steve was one of them. And they ran past us and they kind of looked back and, my, and Steve and I, our eyes locked. And of course, I fell on my skates. I made a jerk of myself. I jumped up and started screaming and chasing after them. And I made a fool of myself. But that was it. The rest is history. So Steve came running back to help you get up off the ground, yeah, scraped yeah, and yeah, bloody get off the ground. <laughs> and then he said, you want to come to a party later? And, you know, lifeguards with their stories and their parties. I figured that nothing would happen. But my friends and I went back that evening for the party and Steve and I hit it off. Oh, my gosh. And and the rest was history. So yep. what was it like in those early years? I mean, you guys were in your basically your late teens, early 20s at that time. right? No, actually, I think Steve was he was going he was starting college at Stony Brook. And I was probably in my mid 20s. Uh, actually, I was a cougar. I was seven <laughs> years older than him. Oh, I love that. So Robbing much. the cradle. Oh, my gosh. So he went off to have a college experience, but you continued or started a relationship during that time. Yeah. And I was I was in my career. I was working for who was I working for at the time? CBS. I don't remember. I can't remember much lately. But yeah, it was a great experience. We, we were so compatible and we had such a good time together. We were really good friends. And you know, we- whenever I think of Steve, I think of belly laughs pity parties. And what the fuck is she so happy about? <laughs> and I'll, I'll expand on each of them because I think they're all important. They're little things in life. And those are the important things as far as I can see. Um, yeah. Steve took me to some great places. He took me to Mallorca and Paris and Colorado and Boulder and Palomar. And we went to some wonderful places, but it's just the little things. And the, the belly laughs are like, actually, that's how I discovered I had tonsil cancer. I was sitting across the table from Steve and he made me let out a b- b- belly laugh. I mean, he was like that. He just was very funny. And he says, what's that thing in your throat? <laughs> he saw it from across the table out of growth. So we went and looked in the mirror and we saw this growth in my throat. And of course, then I had cancer and the diagnosis. And um, one time it was, I was in the depths of despair and doing radiation treatment. And I was laying on the floor just moaning and feeling sorry for myself. And Steve comes into the room. He goes, you want me to take out the hats? And I'm like, what's he talking about? What hats? And he said, the pity party hats, you know, those little cone shaped party hats, (laughs) cardboard ones. So we bought a pair of them. And ever ever since that day, we would always take them out whenever we were feeling sorry about something. But yeah, it's pity party hats. And then what the fuck is she so happy about? And I often wonder, thinking back now, it was funny when Steve said, like, if he saw a person walking by who was just smiling to themselves, he turned around and said, what the fuck are they so happy about? And maybe that was a sign that he was just unhappy and he was, he was not happy that other people were happy. I don't know. I, I maybe I put too much into it, but it was it was funny when he did it. What the well, fuck is she so happy about? I mean, it's hilarious. But, you know, I mean, I think the point you're making is that 
it's really easy to look back and try to make sense out of every little thing someone said and go, God, was that a sign? Did I miss that sign? Right. Um, And that's, that's what's so brutal about suicide. There's so many questions left unanswered. Oh, exactly. Um, It's it's so tough. Being a suicide law survivor is just so painful. I mean, I've met so many and we all share the similar feelings that we're just like, what happened? Why didn't we see the signs and what could we have done different? You know, it's, it's hard because we, you know, cohabit many of us, this earth with a partner for periods of time in our lives. And, and the, the relationship with that person, it's, you're never going to actually inhabit their body and mind to know what they're thinking. All you can do is, is see what they want you to see. And that that's the tough part. You know, when, would you say that your relationship with Steve was like fairly balanced and, and respect-based? Like, did you put equal emphasis on your goals and priorities and his goals and priorities? Yeah. I mean, I tend to gravitate towards his world because it was much more exciting than my world. I was in the computer industry and it was boring. And, um, he obviously he was a triathlete and we traveled a lot. So I tend to lean towards that, but we did have a great respect for each other. And we used to comment to each other how we would see other couples out in public, just they wouldn't show any respect for each other. They would just yell and scream at each other and call them names. And Steve and I, we were never like that. We always, if there was something we disagreed about, we talk about it later outside of public, outside of the public eye. How many years were you together? Over 33. Wow. That's, uh, oh, it's beautiful to hear that. Most people, most people don't make relationships last that long. And still, yeah, it I mean, ended. we had our problems. We, we separated at some point in our relationship, but we got back together again, stronger than ever. And I think that's, the, it's, it's hard to work through, but you become stronger over time. You do definitely just give up and they miss out on the best part of the relationships. You know, a lot of, um, people take the opinion and I'm one of them that relationships change as the people within them change. And mm-hmm. so when you're together for a long time, you really get to experience different versions of a person. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, you know, the version that Steve became the, the person who, you know, died by suicide. At what point did you see that Steve was changing in a way that was not so positive? Probably in the, in the few years before he passed, like he passed in 2015. So I would say probably around 2000, end of 2013 into 2014, when he started getting very indecisive about his event company business and what he was going to do with his life. And did he want to be a coach? Did he want to do this? Did he want to do that? So probably then. I, but I know he was on Ativan ever since I had met him. And I didn't think much of it. Or I put my head in the sand, one of the two. That he saw a psychiatrist once a week. And I figured that was fine by me. I was okay with that. I believe in self-help and trying to work through issues and seeing therapists and whatever. So it, can you, is Ativan an antidepressant? Ativan is a uh, benzodiazepine. It's very addictive. And um, it's interesting because I think was it Chris Cornell it was one of the, the top musicians that took their own lives. He was that musician was on Ativan. And it's a, again, it's a very addictive substance. And Steve and I had gone to see a psychiatrist in upstate New York who was very much against Ativan, the benzodiazepines. It's almost like people relate them to the, um, what's the oxycodone? 
oxycodone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a coming thing with people getting addicted to these Xanax and Ativan and whatever. Yeah. yeah and that's okay. the, when he would have a panic attack, if we took him to the emergency room, the first thing they do is give him the, the Ativan, which is like, I think about it now, it's like, oh God, that was, that was terrible. Yeah. I mean, there having um, your mental health sort of not controlled, but uh, evened out by drugs is definitely an approach that a lot of people benefit from. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like Steve maybe benefited from, you know, being on drugs to help his mental health issues early, but at some point maybe they stopped working for him. Yeah, I think the withdrawal is, is terrible. It's it's very, 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 very ugly. As our panic attacks. So it's like, what do you do? Do you take the drug? Do you have to worry about withdrawal? Is it too much drug? I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. I don't either. And, you know, part of our goal of doing this series is to help people who are struggling, but also to help people who know or live with people who are struggling so that maybe they will see some signs. Um, Maybe they will, you know, there'll be a red flag and they'll be able to do what they can to try to help their person that they love over all these 33 years. You know, you said you noticed maybe in the last three years or few years, looking back that he was becoming indecisive you know, there were certain things that were obviously changing, but did the way he treated you or your relationship change over the course of 33 years? No, I don't think so. But it's, it's interesting because I just had another flashback of I think it was probably in the 1990s when Steve was having one of his episodes. I almost became a race director. He was on contract to do a triathlon to be the race director. And he went into one of his states where he just couldn't function. And he went to bed and he just depressed, totally depressed. So I'm, I have my regular corporate job and I'm trying to order medals and select t-shirts. I'm thinking, what am I going to do on race day? I have no idea what to do on a race day. And thank God he came out of it. I look back now and I think that was just what we did, him and his family. I'm sorry, myself and his family. We just held everything together until he could come out of it because he always did come out of it. And that's what we did. Oh, and you know, one of the things that we have agreed upon with Steve is that he was an incredible actor. He was someone who really truly from the outside had it all and uh, influenced so many people in a really positive way. Um, And I feel like you just mentioned it. So maybe it is a good time to talk a little bit about the beautiful business he built and all these incredible relationships and community that he put together. Yeah, I mean, Steve pretty much laid the fi- laid the foundation for triathlon on Long Island. He created so many races, some of which are still in existence today. He created the first woman all women's pool race, um, children's races, duathlons. I mean, he was unbelievable. He went at a frenetic pace. That was the, I guess if you could say it was bipolar, that was the high when he would create these races. And then he realized how much he had on his plate. Then he got depressed. How could he handle all that? But yeah, he he had incredible influence. He was a well-known coach, swim coach. Um, I don't know. How did you know of Steve? He brought you down to one of his to do, to run one of his races, to participate in one of his races, the Mighty Hamlet, yes. right? 
Yeah. I think in my very last pro year, I went down and, and raced the mighty Hamptons as right. sort of like a grand finale final, you know, race of the season. And it was basically just a super fun yeah. event, a bit of a party. And I remember Steve just lighting up the course and I think yeah. he might've even raced. That's the cool thing. A lot of race directors, they are just so busy putting on the thing that they were so passionate about that they stopped doing it. Yeah. He, continued to do it. He loved it. He really did. And I think, and he wanted to see what the athletes were experiencing because he wanted to improve the races and make them better. So he needed to see what was going on. You know, um, clearly he influenced a lot of people. We've had a few of them on the series, people he coached, people who looked up to him. Um, and it's just obvious that he put out a completely different image to the world than what was going on inside. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. yeah and you know, when you talk about acting, I think it was Ruth that I was trading emails with. Ruth is another person who did a podcast with you. And Steve had studied acting in New York city with a, with a pretty established studio. I mean, I said to myself, geez, maybe he really wanted to put on, did that to put on a front to learn how to put on a front for his illness. Or maybe he really did want to act. I don't know. That's what I mean. The unanswered questions. Well, that's just it, you know, and I know we're going to repeat a few things that we learned along the way, but, um, Dr. Andreski did make the point that many people, if they don't want you to know, you will not know. Right. Right. Um, however, our hope and goal is that we can maybe chip away at the armor, a little bit of people who are in a place that's deep and dark and, you know, part of that is the fact that they leave behind this, you know, community of people, in some cases, whole communities, in some cases, you know, family or friends and uh, that are heartbroken and wish they could have done more. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that Dr. Andreski did say was that our best chance is to help people feel less alone. Yeah. However, in Steve's case for Eugene, he didn't ever convey to you that he felt alone, did he? No. I think it's, it's very, very hard. I mean, because some people, Dr. Andreski said that some people cannot be saved. And is it because they're such good actors or that there is something physical in the, in the body? It's a physical, as Ruth would say, it's a physical illness, but it's manifesting itself in the brain. It's the brain is messed up, but it's a physical illness of the brain. And I believe that, you know, and it's, you know, I, I suffer from Parkinson's disease and that's a physical illness of the brain. Isn't that ironic? Uh, Actually, um, maybe it it would be just good for us to do a little sidetrack here on your Parkinson's, um, because you have made comments to me before, like, I don't like how my voice sounds, you know, Parkinson's is, has been a little bit rough. And it can be brought on by stress. Maybe you can share a little bit about when your Parkinson's started and why you think it started. Yeah, I was diagnosed seven months after um, Steve had passed. And the, my primary care, I was getting a physical. And I said, my handwriting is terrible. So she says, go to a neurologist. And I went to the neurologist. And I went to 12 neurologists. And they all said, I, I didn't believe that I had Parkinson's because I led such a healthy lifestyle. It doesn't matter. The disease will strike whoever wants to strike. So, yeah, it's it's been a tough journey. 
Yes, definitely. And uh, I commend you for continuing to push this really good work through because I know you don't feel great a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, um, I want to just ask very directly, at what point did you know that Steve was suicidal or may try to take his own life? I, d- I didn't know. I mean, his, his family had told me that Steve had an attempt at their house in probably late 2014. And I didn't think anything of it because I never, I never knew anyone who took their own lives. I, suicide was not something that was in my vocabulary. And, you know, then when he finally took his life, when his, his family called and said what had happened in Arizona, I was like, I can't believe it. I was like, how can this happen? I never, I never knew. Maybe, like I said, I think I put my head in the sand a lot about a lot of things. Well, and you know, this is so hard because we hear this so much from people that the first sign they ever had that somebody was having suicidal thoughts was when they died or when they attempted. And it seems unbelievable. Like really, how could you not know? Yeah. I, I, I asked myself that question. But it's it, he was a good actor. And I said, how can he possibly want to take his own life? And there's one other person um, who's well known in the I don't want to say the suicide community, but Kevin Hines. I, I read his story and listen to what he tried to jump off the gold. He did jump off the Golden Gate Bridge to take his own life. And I'll never forget what he said. It was a quote from him, something to the effect that the minute his hand left the railing that he said to himself, what am I doing? Why did I do this? And I think I often wonder if Steve went through the same thing, you know, when he was taking his own life, did he think that this is wrong? I shouldn't do this. Or is it a mistake? Yeah, I don't know. That's part of the very hard, you know, ripple effect on the, on the backside. And, you know, you weren't there. So I don't know how you actually feel about that. We've never talked about it. Gene, do you wish that you had been with his family or, you know, there on site and not receive not not to find him, I'm sure, obviously, but like you were distanced, physically distanced. Yeah, I mean, I think back about when I dropped him off at the airport because he passed in Sedona, Arizona. And thinking I didn't realize at the time that was the last time I was going to see him. And it blew my mind when one day I was in the um in a coffee shop in New York City with a friend, a mutual friend, and she got a phone call from Steve's family and they said they wanted her to go to my house. They didn't know we were together, but they want her to go to my house and be with me because they had some news they had to tell me and I needed to have a friend there. And my friend, I could see my friend's face just falling in the tears. And I was like, oh my God, something happened to see when we had to take the train home back to Long Island. It was just, oh, it was terrible. And so you waited to hear the news until you were together alone in your apartment? Well, no, I could tell. I said, I said to my friend, I said, what's wrong? And she was crying. And then that's when I found out that Stephen passes in the coffee shop. And oh, what a tough time. Well, and and then comes the part of recovery, like there's shock. And and then it's this whole series of putting the pieces together. Everybody looking back, you, Jean, learning even at points during this project that Steve made phone calls at the very end to people in his life that he hadn't talked to for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, tell me about a little bit about the, the days and weeks and months after. After, after he passed. Yeah. 
Uh, it was tough because he had the business, obviously. It was triathlon season because he passed in March. So he had, I wanted to cancel them all. So, you know, the family and I worked things out and somebody bought the company, friends of Steve's. And uh, it was just, it was difficult because I had my own thing that I was dealing with. And oh, I'm glad that's over with. It had to just be a fog. You yeah, know? brain fog, which I'm permanently in now. So <laughs> and now at least you can add a little humor today. But, you know, Gene, um, can we talk about the emotions of survivors? I mean, did you ever feel guilty like oh yeah tell I me think all that. the survivors do i think we blame ourselves we could have done something different and even people family and friends blame each other it's just i think it's the nature of the beast that somebody it's the human nature to blame somebody for something you gotta assign blame and um it was just it was it was a tough time you know for those people out there who are feeling that way right now maybe a better question is did you have the resources that you needed to heal at that time? No, I had to search them out myself. There was a support group that hospice had put on, but it was for women who had lost their husbands to cancer, to heart disease, but it, it wasn't a suicide group. So although it was helpful because we were all experiencing the loss of a partner, it, suicide is just its own unique thing. It's just like, it's so unnatural. It's just not a natural way to die. And it's, you know, there is a certain, I, I don't know, like a camaraderie is that the word I'm looking for, of, of suicide law survivors where we can all relate to each other because we all go through the same thing. I mean, people don't want to talk about it. It's stigmatized. It's, you know, that nobody wants to say how. I mean, I was the same way. I told the local reporter, you can't put the cause of Steve's death in the newspaper. And was this and, right after he yeah. passed? Yeah. And what, tell me about that. Yeah, I had this. Uh, local reporter for the local Long Island newspaper because Steve was well known in the triathlon community. He was going to write a, an article about him and his passing. And I said to him, I go, you cannot put the cause of his death in the, in the uh, article. And again, it's a stigma of suicide. Nobody wants to talk about it. God forbid you say you died by suicide. I mean, it's, it's from a disease, just like any heart disease or cancer, or as far as I'm concerned, it just took their lives. So back in 2015, you did not have readily available resources, the healing, you know, it manifested in a physical form, the onset of Parkinson's. Do you feel like today that resources are easier for people to find? Well, I think what was, what's the, I mean, people bash social media, but I think it does have its good points because I ended up joining some Facebook, Facebook groups that have groups for survivors of suicide, and it could be for parents who are survivors, for spouses who are survivors, or children who are survivors. So in that respect, it's very good. And there's a lot, of, I see the common threads about what people are so upset about and trying to get through accepting what happened to their loved one. And it's getting better. It's still not 100%. AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, is a great organization. Um, you know, they have their walks and their awareness things that they do, which is great. Uh, I think it's gotten better over time, but it's still not there yet. No, it's not there yet. Um, you know, there is a suicide prevention line that seems to be sort of the go-to for anybody who doesn't know where to go. 
mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they can point people in various directions, but I do agree with you. It's still, there's still a bit of a gray area where you have to figure it out. And when you're grieving and you're going through loss like that, and you are in a deep, dark pit yourselves, it's really hard to reach out and do investigative work. Yeah. Yeah. I still get weepy about it. I, I can't help myself sometimes. It's, It's so sad. It really is. It's so sad. And you know, Steve taught you so much. He taught you how to love in in a different way than you ever had. I mean, I'm, I'm even remembering a story you shared on social media. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can, maybe you can share that forward. I feel like it's a beautiful legacy for Steve to leave with people. I'm going to start crying. (laughs) Yes. My parents had retired to Florida and I stayed in New York. And every time I would go to visit them, I would leave their home. And I'd be crying. And Steve would say, as we're driving to the airport, because he would go with me on these visits sometimes. He said, why are you crying? And I said, because I think it's going to be the last time that I'm going to see my parents because they're getting on in years. And I hate to say goodbye. He said, did you ever tell them you love them? And I said, no, it just wasn't my family the way we did things. We were, I don't want to say cold, but we were not, um, we didn't display our affection that much. And then Steve, after he turned the car around, he says, go back and say, tell your parents that you love them and say goodbye to them. So I did. And it was like the best thing for my, me and my parents' relationship because I was able to say I love them after that. And not that it made it easy when they passed, but it, was, it didn't make it as hard because I was able to say that and break that barrier. And that's all because of Steve. Yeah. You know, I think Steve left that legacy with so many people and Jean, yeah. that's so special, you know? Um, one of the things that we're hoping to prove is that the stigma about suicide, talking about suicide and being open about suicide is changing, which we believe then will allow people to find what they need before it's too late. Do you think it's really changing? Yeah, I've seen changes and I've, I've written a couple of blogs about it. And like the suicide helpline, that's a song written by or it's the title of a song that an artist, I forget what the artist's name was, but he wrote the song about the suicide helpline. And so many families of actors and famous people are not being silent about the cause of their loved one's deaths, like Chris Cornell. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of them that pass from suicide and their families are open about it which is good. And that's something that would not have happened in the past until we can get to the point where we can talk about suicide, like we can about cancer and polio and heart disease. It's things won't change. We need to be able to realize that it is, a, it's, I don't want to say valid, but it's a, it's a way of dying. It's, you know, it's not just something to be ashamed of or, or fearful of. Well, and going all the way back to when you told that reporter, don't mention that. At what point did you realize I actually have to talk about this? Um, probably it was probably a couple of months after well, I published Steve's memoir in October. I can't remember anything yeah. in 2016, early 16, I think. So as I wrote that, I realized I need to talk about his life because he's much more than just the triathlete who took his own life. I mean, Steve, his legacy is amazing what he had done in his life and what he accomplished and how he impacted so many people positively. That is so true. And when we say that we can't 
share how they died. We often don't share anything about them at all. Right. Right. And I know that that's just one of the saddest things to imagine is that somebody just gets erased. Oh, I just, I never want to seem to be forgotten. And when people come back to me years later and, and tell me a memory, it's like, oh my God, that's so wonderful. I'm so glad you shared that with me because people still do think about him and you know, what, what he did for them or it's, it's, yeah, it's great that, that people can still remember him for the good stuff that he's done. Well, and I think that's a really important message to people. If you know someone who died by suicide and you have this wonderful memory or just something comes up that makes you think of them, reach out to the loved one that they left behind the closer loved one they left behind and share that because they don't want to believe that their person was erased. Yeah. And I think people just, they just don't know what to say to somebody who lost someone to suicide. And I remember one time I was doing the tunnels to towers 5k and I saw a bunch of guys with Jones Beach t-shirts on and I figured they must have known Steve. He's a lifeguard for many years. And I came up alongside one of them and I said, hi, I said, did you know Steve Tarpinian? He said, he shook his head. Yes. And I said, well, I'm his life partner. And he just took off like a bat out of hell. Like he didn't want to talk to me. He wanted nothing to do with me. And, you know, people are awkward. They don't know what to say. It's just, you know. Wow. That's really, that's really awkward, but yeah. yeah, they don't know what to say. I mean, death is a tough topic on its own. Mm-hmm. And then you add something that many people assign shame to, and it makes it even worse. Yeah. Um, sure. It really does. You know, I think one of the things that we learned from Adam Sud was that he's so, he so perfectly phrased it. It was that people who attempt suicide are not trying to end their lives. They're trying mm-hmm. to end their pain. Very profound. Yeah. And, uh, what's really hard for me to imagine with this beautiful glowing man is that he had that much pain that he was Mm. trying to end. Yeah. It's, and I think I have educated some people, which is makes me feel good with my Facebook page that I have dedicated to Steve. I mean, I've had people reach out to me in my blogs and not that I can give them counseling. I'm not a professional, but at least to share my experience and what I went through and, and help them in any way I can. Well, and you, you definitely have, you know, one of the things that I think is a bit of a fallacy is that suicide is 100% preventable. Mm-hmm. Can you share your thoughts on that? I don't think it is. I think once somebody takes, decides to take their own lives, like especially in Steve's case, he was so intelligent. I mean, I really think there was something physically, chemically, off balance. It was a physical illness that he couldn't, he couldn't fight anyway. It's like Parkinson's. I can't do it. It's an incurable disease. I can't do anything to help myself other than take the drugs they tell me to take. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's such a gray area, you know, we'll do the best we can, but when someone's truly committed, um, Sometimes yeah, I don't think anything help. was going to change Steve's mind. I mean, he, the fact that he t- attempted once before and he told me he would not try that again. And I believed him, but he had made up his mind. Yeah. Yes, he had. Um, as a survivor, what has been the hardest part of your journey? Just being alone, missing, missing Steve and all the good he brought into the world and just the life that I had. 
it was it was a good life. One of the things that's very common among suicidal people is that they they do feel very alone. You just mentioned that for yourself. Mm-hmm. I've never asked you this. Has the thought of taking your own life has have you ever felt suicidal? Yeah, but I'm too chicken to do anything because I figured I'd probably come out worse than I went into it. I'd screw it up. Gene. <laughs> I'm wow. so practical sometimes. But yeah, wow. I mean, it's it always crossed my mind, but I'm just, I'm not going to execute on it. I, it's, I think we all, some t- at some points in our lives, we come to such a depressive state. It's like, why, why am I going on? Why am I doing this? And we all get that. And I think the suicide of a loved one just can, I know the statistics show that this, the loved ones of someone who has taken their own life they're they're more apt to take their and make an attempt at their own life, but I know I couldn't I couldn't do it. It's just well, I will say that you know, you made a comment to me when we started working on this that you said something like, you know what, Nicole, this project is so important to me. It's one of the only things that is just keeping me going right now. It's true. I, I have my ups and downs. And it's just it's been it's been a tough couple of years but i mean people we all have our crosses to bear i have one friend who says if we all put our problems into a basket we don't pull back our own because we don't want anybody else's problem <laughs> it's just life it's just the way i mean she's dealing with some issues with her aging mom and it's like so everybody's got some some shit to deal with yeah they do and you know it just sort of leads me all the way back to the mission with this podcast series and you said you know like what am i doing here why why am i even still here well this alone, this project alone is helping people. So I want to help you that. I hope so. Cause I know one of the things Steve had asked me at one point, he says, Gene, he says, you find your job fulfilling and why do you do your job? And I worked in computers. It's like, I, if I could help people make their job easier because I could fix a bug or tell them to use this statement in a program or whatever, it made me feel good. And I realized that Steve's mission in life was to help people because he was, if you look at his choices of careers. He was a lifeguard. Um, he, he actually went out, he trained and studied for the FDNY test. And when he was called, he ended up not going. And I said to him, I'm glad you didn't because you probably would have died in, two, in 2001 in the, tra- in the World Trade Center tragedy. And um, so he was a coach, a lifeguard, saving people's lives, wanted to be a fireman to save people's lives. And he just, he wanted to help people. That was his whole legacy, I think. Well, and it's coaching, it's, you know, in a strange way, it's being passed on through this and you have taken that mission on yourself. Yeah. He taught me that (laughs) he did teach you that. What, what do you want to say to other survivors who are suffering, who've lost loved ones to suicide? Talk about it. Don't keep it inside. And, you know, whether it's through social media or just a good friend that you can speak to, it's it's important to talk about it. It really is. Jean, let's let's wrap it up today by talking to Steve. Why don't you share with him what you want to say right now? Steve, I wish you were here now, still helping people like you had always helped them. I know many people miss you and you did some wonderful things to people. You were coach of life as well as a coach of sport and you're a great loss to the world. 
the fact that he would always say we'd all be better off without him, I never understood that. He, he never realized how, how much of a positive impact he had on people. Steve, I miss you too. You're amazing. Yeah. And the world misses you. We wish you were here. Yep. Well, Gene, thank you so much for sharing today. When someone dies by suicide, it is common for the survivors to erase that part of their journey and not talk about how their loved one died. When this happens, it perpetuates the stigma around suicide, which makes it harder for people to reach out when they need help. Steve Tarpinian died by suicide in 2015, but he also left a beautiful legacy of love and support to many people. By sharing his story and talking openly about suicide, it is our goal to help people who are struggling reach out for the help they need before it is too late. And by offering a glimpse into the perspectives of those who are touched by suicide, we hope to help those who are struggling with suicide or are suicide loss survivors. Please remember, you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800 273 8255. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast. You never know who might need to hear it right now. Thank you.